As we stand, let's pray. May I speak in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may each of us hear this as the word of the living God and act upon it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please, would you sit? Well, the verse, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, pray with thanksgiving to God, was one of the very first Bible verses I ever learned. And the great thing about learning Bible verses is they come back to you when you need them. Aged 18, a friend and I had borrowed my mother's car and gone down to Devon for a few days. One afternoon, we'd parked the car down a country lane and decided to go for a round walk, ending up back at the car. Only, the map I had was rather inadequate, my map reading skills are not brilliant, and somehow we got hopelessly lost. What were we going to do? We didn't know the area. We were pretty vulnerable as two young girls, and soon it was going to get dark. Well, there's plenty to be anxious about there, let me tell you. But we had this verse to remind us that the Lord is near. So we did what it said. I prayed. I asked God to help us get back to the car. I gave thanks. And in faith, my friend stuck out her thumb. (laughs) Well, within minutes, a traveling salesman pulled up a kindly older man who knew exactly which road our car was on and he squeezed us in the back next to his dog. Now, I am not recommending hitchhiking and I'm not recommending being irresponsible with your mother's car. But what I am saying is that when we took God at his word, when we actually did what he told us to do, then he heard us. And not only did that peace of God, which passes understanding, keep us in Christ, but he also met our needs. Well, we're back in Philippians uh, chapter 4. We've had a short break. It would be really helpful if you would find pages, page 1180, Philippians chapter 4, because we're going to be looking at it quite closely. Well, it's as though Paul's love for these Christians just keeps bursting out. Look at verse 1. He calls them, my brothers and sisters, dear friends, my joy and crown. It's as if he can't tell them enough how much they mean to him. So for us today, imagine that this teaching is coming to you from someone who loves you deeply and wants the absolute best for you. Well, what is Paul's concern? That they should stand firm in the Lord. Well, this suggests to me that some kind of wobbling may be going on, some danger may be threatening them, in the face of which they are to stand firm. But how? Well, our translation begins, therefore... So, therefore, that is how you should stand firm. And that suggests they need to look back to what Paul has already said. Verse 20, to recall, your citizenship, where you really belong, is not here. 
It's not in the present age. It is in heaven with God. And because of that, look forward, eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Alan called living eternity now. But it could equally have been translated, therefore, in other words, in the light of heaven and Jesus coming, this is how you should stand firm. So take note of what Paul is going on to say. Now don't forget, when the Philippians first received this letter, they didn't get it in bite-sized chunks to preach sermons on. They got the whole lot in one sitting. So I think the effect would have been both. But for today, we're going to focus on verses 2 to 9. Now I want us to consider two threats to the Philippian Christians. One in-house, within the church fellowship, and one within individual believers. And then we'll look at how to stand firm in the Lord. Now those words, in the Lord, really matter. Notice how many times they come. We've had it in verse 1. Stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, agree with each other in the Lord. Verse 7, the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Sorry, I missed out. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. The key, the fundamental key to standing firm is keeping alive our relationship with Jesus Christ himself. And the biggest threat to standing firm is what is going on in our minds and in our hearts. Notice verse 7, Paul talks about the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Guarding. We need a shield. We need a protection, a garrison around us to protect against attack. And where the enemy strikes first is within, because from the mind and from the heart flow what we say and what we do, and how we behave towards other people. So my friends, let's be discerning about the threats. Let's look at the enemy's tactics, and let's learn how to stand firm in the Lord. Well, the first way the enemy threatens the church is he sows discord. But he lets each of us think we are right. He sows discord but we each think we're in the right. Look at verse 2. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, we know nothing about these women, but just imagine the shock for them and for everyone else when the letter was first read out. Be like me reading, the bishop says, now Diana and Alan, sort yourselves out. Why does Paul name names? Well, he certainly does not do it to name and shame. Paul pleads because he loves them as a brother. And he recalls, verse 3, These women have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Notice Paul doesn't take sides. I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche. 
He pleads equally to each and gives each an equal responsibility to make the first move and agree with each other. Now, we don't know what had come between them. Maybe it was some personality clash. Maybe they disagreed over some doctrine. Maybe one of them had done something to hurt the other, either consciously or unconsciously. The point is, it must be brought into the open and some kind of reconciliation found, or else the church will be weakened from within. It will not stand firm. Now, Paul knows such reconciliation is hard. When Christians fall out with each other, it is always hard. And that's why, verse 3, he asks his loyal yoke fellow to help these women. Now, just for a moment, put your name in the text. And hear God saying, I plead with you, Diana, your name, and I plead with you, put the name of another Christian who for some reason you find it hard to get on with. Agree in the Lord. So how do we do it? What should we do? Well, firstly, we need to value our relationship with this person as a fellow believer, as a brother or sister in Christ, as more important than any disagreement which divides us. In my mind and in my heart, I am to recall, end of verse 3, We are fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. That's the heavenly perspective. Christ himself has written the name of this person whom I find difficult in his book. And we will be in harmony together in Christ's heaven. Let me reassure you of that. So as far as possible... We are to live the life of heaven now. Just notice something, though. When Paul writes, agree in the Lord, he does not mean agree about everything. He actually says, have the same attitude or mindset in the Lord. It's what we read in chapter 2, verse 5, Your attitude, my attitude, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, which was to make himself nothing, to serve others, and to humble himself to die on the cross. So when I don't insist that I am right... When I serve another Christian whom I find challenging, this is part of what living the cross looks like in practice. Recently, I came across a quote from Brother Roger, who founded the Teze community in France, and we sing some of the Teze songs, which seem to me helpful when Christians disagree. 
We will not try to find out who was wrong. We will not try to find out who was right. We will only say, let us be reconciled. Secondly, what do we do? Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And because it really matters, I will say it again, rejoice. Each of us needs to keep our focus where it belongs, on the Lord Jesus himself. The more time I spend with Jesus, seeing how he treated people, the more I take delight in the character of Jesus, seeing his love in action through the Gospels, the more I dwell on the cross of Jesus, where he was willing to die for sinners like me, the more Jesus is the source of my joy, then the more I find I want to be like him. And that matters above everything else. And all other relationships and issues stay in their right perspective. Next, verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Now, it seems to me gentleness is a lovely quality and in relatively short supply in today's hectic world. But why does Paul call for it here? Well, the word means gentle forbearance or clemency towards someone else. In other words, giving the other person what I call a margin of grace. Now, I can never fully know someone else's story. I don't know what baggage he has inherited. I don't know what are her frustrated hopes. And I find it helps me in challenging relationships to pray the gentle words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. For they don't know what they're doing. Now, I'm not saying it's easy or that it makes everything better. It's tough, but the Lord is near. Jesus himself will help me have the same mindset as him if that is what I am willing to want. Now, one way I can cooperate with God in applying this, what is an inner transformation, basically, is to apply verses 8 and 9 in challenging relationships. Finally, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Think about, ponder, give proper weight and value to. Do you see how the challenge comes to what is going on in my mind? In the face of my euodia or your syntyche, It is all too easy to nurture negative thoughts, 
to replay what he said which hurt me or what she didn't do or to focus on their failings. But where is that train of thought ultimately taking me? Well, it's taking me into judgment on that person. It's taking me into inner turmoil for me because it keeps playing round and round. It's taking me into either self-righteousness, I'm right, or into self-pity. Now, are any of those the mind and character of Christ? No. But I have a choice. That is our freedom, my friends, in Christ. I do not have to go down that negative route. And the best antidote is to go in the opposite direction. I recall whatever is true. This person is loved and forgiven by God. He or she is my brother or sister in Christ. And I am intentional about looking for any evidence of God's work in their lives and dwelling on it. And then... Because that way is pleasing to God, I find the end of verse 9 to be true. The God of peace will be with you. So that's the first threat. Discord within the church and some ideas of what we can do about it. Well, now the second threat. Within the mind and the heart of each individual believer. And what is this time? What is the enemy's tactic? What does he do? He sows anxiety and he lets us feel overwhelmed by it. He sows anxiety and lets us feel overwhelmed. Well, verse 6. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Seems to me that worry lurks everywhere. Big worries, little worries, what will happen, what might happen, what might not happen to me, to my family, to the world, to this country. Da, da. And sometimes it can be overwhelming. Now, anxiety about our circumstances is quite understandable. But even Paul... Remember, he's writing from prison, chained to a Roman soldier. He is expecting soon to die. Even he says and insists to believers, do not be anxious about anything. Do not. Sounds like a command. It is. But like all God's commands, it is for our good. Now, having spent some time recently with an elderly friend, not a Christian, who is excessively anxious, I observed that worry is an insatiable force. There is no stopping it. And if we give it space in our minds, it will have a destructive effect on our relationship with Christ. We will start doubting his love for us. We will start doubting his power. And hence the need to have our minds and hearts guarded. 
for what God wants for his beloved children, for you, for me, is the total opposite of worry. It is verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it goes beyond what makes sense. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this peace is not something abstract. It may not even be a peaceful feeling. But we know for certain, verse 5, that the Lord is near. We know that the God of peace is with us in every single situation. And we know that nothing can come between us and Jesus Christ. So how do we get there? Well, verse 6. But in everything, present your requests to God by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Everything, every detail, every concern, every worrying circumstance becomes a springboard for prayer as we share it with our loving God and ask him for what we most want and need. And we do it with thanks, with thanksgiving. Now, I'm not thanking God for how I think he's going to answer my prayers. But I am thanking him to express my trust that he is a good God who loves me and ultimately He's the one in control. So again, I'm not saying it's easy. I have to keep reliving this every single day. But as followers of Christ, worry does not need to control our minds. Through prayer, God has provided another way. But again, it's up to us to choose. You can keep with the worry if you like. But we can choose and keep on choosing, deliberately, consciously, to place everything in his hands by prayer and with thanksgiving. And here too, I have found applying verse 8 to be helpful. Because anxiety so quickly invades the mind with all its negative thoughts... I play a different soundtrack. And I fill my mind, as far as I can, with whatever is true, pure, right, lovely, admirable. And where do I find this? Well, most fully in those scriptures that speak of Jesus himself and speak of the day when I will see him face to face in his heaven. So when worry assails you, dig deeper into the word of God. For there is truth, truth that I have spoken of this morning, that you can stand on through the storm. Let's pray. Recently I met up with a vicar friend of mine who, like me, became a Christian as a teenager 
and has been in full-time ministry for 30 years. And reflecting on this phase of his life, he said, I want to be a better Christian, more like Jesus Christ. And something about that thrilled me and echoed in my heart. And now in the silence, I want to invite you, tell God what you want in the light of today's sermon. God has heard your prayer. May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say to the glory of God. Amen.